Our message this morning is entitled, As Christ Loved the Church, and is message two in our series on the Christian home, focusing more specifically on the role of a biblical husband. We'll begin this morning by reading Ephesians chapter 5, verses 30 through 32. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, his being Christ Jesus. We being the church, of course. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. As we explained last week, that's our foundation passage for this study that we're undertaking right now, one that communicates to us the fact that the relationship that the Lord Jesus has with his bride in a mystery is one that has been depicted by the first institution that God created in the world in the Garden of Eden, and God did intend for that institution, this institution of marriage, to parallel, in a sense, and depict for us this relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just a word on that. Scripture gives us several metaphors that depict the relationship of God and his children. We obviously have that of a marriage. Jesus is our husband. We are the bride of Christ as his people. Scripture speaks of our relationship with him through the framework of a servant and a master. We are the servants of Christ. He is our master. It describes it as a birth. We are the sons of God. He is our father. We've been translated into his kingdom. He is our king. And we are sanctified by him. He is our great high priest. He's our apostle. We look at so many of these metaphors in Scripture, and we find a closer glimpse into the relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus. We learn the way that we belong to him, what he is to us, as we study these various types of relationship that we have with him. But as we consider the Lord as our husband and we as his bride, not only as we consider this great example that we have to husbands on the type of love that we have for him, but we also learn what he is to us. And as we pointed out last week, as people who belong to Jesus, people who live for Jesus, every aspect of our lives is to be to the glory of God. And so as we as husbands today think about the type of husbandship that we have with Christ, even though many of us here Many of you here are wives or you're unmarried people. You can find in this message today, a message of husbands and wives, you can find a great lesson on the gospel as you learn what type of Savior your husband, the Lord Jesus, is unto you. So if you're a wife who's out here in the audience today in the congregation today and you say, you know, I'm not a husband or you're a child and you say, I'm not yet a husband. Maybe you're a, a young female that's not yet married or perhaps you're even widowed. This message might not in the practical application apply to you specifically. It's one that ought to be preached. And you know that if you come back next week, if you're a man and you hear some lessons on what God's Word says to wives, it, it's one that doesn't apply to you specifically as well. But we can learn lessons, we can find glimpses into the love that Jesus has for us and the redemptive work of Jesus for us as we study this concept of a husband and a wife, because Jesus is our great husband. As we introduce the concept to you today, just to give you a little bit of a thought up front, especially to those of us here who are husbands, being a godly husband is not only beneficial to us and to our homes, it's something that brings glory to God. And so just a couple of thoughts up front. As we think about the reason why we would want to be a biblical husband, and we said it last week, there's so many different ideas in the world on what you ought to be as a husband, as a man of God, depending on who you ask depending on what school of thought you 
are adhering to in the moment. And Lord knows in this world you have so many different opposing schools of thought on everything. I think the world is one great scream match between people who have their opinions trying to outshout the other people, proving by the sheer volume of their voice that they are right. And I hate to break it to you, you can scream as loud as you want. If you're wrong, you're wrong. Screaming about it doesn't make you any more right than if you were quiet about it. But being a scriptural husband helps foster a healthy home environment. And there's a lot of people in the world that promise how to have a healthy home environment. But the Bible presents one to us that is going to create, it's going to foster a healthy home environment. Being a scriptural husband, and this is something that I say to people when I'm working with them prior to their marriage, it helps you be the type of husband that a godly wife is going to respect. That's been observed by preachers throughout the centuries that, and I believe you can make the case from the book of Ephesians chapter 5, wives need to feel loved by their husbands. And husbands want to be loved by their wives, sure. But perhaps what husbands need more from their wives is to feel as though the wife respects them. I think husbands could live with less love and more respect than they could more love and less respect. Now, you find this in Paul's writings to them. Paul doesn't admonish husbands to reverence their wives, though we ought to respect our wives and their wishes and their desires. He says for husbands to love their wives. When he speaks to women... He doesn't say to love your husbands. Now, there are scriptures that say that, but here in Ephesians 5, he says that the wife ought to what? Reverence her husband. And so we can infer from that that women have an instinctive, an innate desire for love, and men have an instinctive, innate, inherent desire to be respected. As a husband who patterns himself after the word of God, you are a husband who will be easier to respect. As you love your wife, as you provide for your wife, as you care for her, as you cherish her, as you nurture her, you are an easier man to respect. Now, does this mean, all right, Brother Ben, I tried it this week and my wife didn't respect me. Well, no, there are admonitions to the wife as well, and we'll consider those next week. But as a disclaimer, there's always a fine print. As the disclaimer to today's message, if you do everything the Word of God calls on you to do, and you are everything the Word of God calls on you to be as a husband, that doesn't automatically mean that the sinner you're married to is going to, in all things, respect and reverence and love and obey you. Because guess what she is? She's just like you. She's a sinner. When we talk about wives, you can be a submissive wife, and it doesn't mean that your husband is suddenly going to transform into the godly, loving, nurturing, cherishing man that he's ought to be. That he ought to be. It doesn't automatically happen because you have not one person who's dealing with their own issues in a marriage. You have two people who are dealing with their own issues in a marriage. In fact, I have known godly wives who had wretched husbands who did in no wise return the biblical treatment of them. And I have known good godly men who were married to outright, struggling for a word, I was going to say hideous, and that wouldn't be the right word, horrendous perhaps, rebellious, contentious is the Proverbs word, outright contentious women. And my heart goes out for them because it's got to be terrible. To live with a contentious person, it, it's better to be homeless in the middle of the woods than in a big fancy house, according to the Proverbs. Just because we do this doesn't mean it's going to force the other person to respond in kind, but as a general principle, 
You understand what the phrase means? In general, generally speaking, it helps you be a man that your wife is going to respect. And we all as husbands want to be respected by our wives. Lastly, being a biblical husband brings glory to God. And we pointed this out last week from Ephesians. Wives submit to their own husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Servants, be obedient to them that are your own masters. As unto Christ and masters, you need to understand that you have a master in heaven. What's the common denominator in every exhortation that Paul gives to the Ephesian church? Their relationship with Christ. It's not, as we so often do as Americans, compartmentalized. I have Christ in this compartment, family in this compartment, work in this compartment, pleasure, recreation in this compartment. But in everything that we do, Christ is to be central, center, the middle the foundation of all that we do is people who love Jesus. And so as a husband, I want to do this because of Christ, and I want to do this to bring glory unto Christ. Now just as a little bit of a side point, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whether you therefore eat or drink whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. I am commanded in the word of God to do everything I do to the glory of God. You, you might say, I thought that we only did what we do in worship to the glory of God. Now, we are to engage in worship in a specific way. It's to be according to the principles and patterns of God's word. But the worshiping and the glorying of God, the glorifying of God, does not end when we walk out the doors to this facility and engage in our own personal lives in the world. Whether we eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. I should endeavor to glorify God in my leadership in the home over which Christ has made me head. I am to desire to glorify God in the way that I am a husband and the way that I am a father. Now notice, whether you eat or drink, that might even imply... Things that we would never consider in worship, eating and drinking, going to a banquet, having a glass of wine and eating some feast with people that you know and love. Whatever you do, Paul says, he's using extreme examples. And in this chapter, you have buying meat that is sold in the markets that had been previously offered unto an idol. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do. Do all that you do to the glory of God, which means that if it's sinful, you shouldn't be doing it because that which is sinful does not bring glory to God. And whatever we do in Christian liberty, in our homes, in our jobs, in our marriages, we do all that we do to the glory of God. Whether therefore ye eat or drink, whatever you're doing, do it all to the glory of God. I should endeavor as a husband to glorify God in the way that I interact with my wife. Do you remember the movie Grumpy Old Men? We come into the world grumpy. I guarantee the first thing you ever said was a complaint. And it's gone downhill from there. Think of all the complaining that we've done this year as Americans. We sit in 70-degree homes on nice cushioned chairs, and we get on social media on high-speed Internet. Listen, kids, you don't know what it was like in the 90s. <laughs> on our high-speed Internet, we gather together on social media, and we whine, and we complain, and we grumble, and we bellyache. That's not to the glory of God. We are naturally grumpy old men, and it seems like we get grumpier the longer we go. I should endeavor to want to glorify Christ in the way that I am as a husband. Now, one of the words that we look at today is cherish. We want to cherish each other 
as husbands and wives. If I cherish my wife, I'm not the grumpy old man. I'm not the grumpy old man. Sometimes I am. Anytime we have a home project, and if you know anything about Sister Rachel, you know that those recycle every six weeks. Anytime I'm doing sheetrock, anytime I'm hanging a ceiling fan or a light or changing a door or moving a wall or tiling a floor, she's like, go to work. Go somewhere else because you are grumpy. I want to be the Christ-glorifying husband, not the grumpy old man. As we introduce this thought to us today as men in particular, I want this message to challenge us. I want this message to challenge you. Now, you know that any time I preach on husbands and wives, as we went through the book of Ephesians and as we went through the book of 1 Peter, we considered these subjects together. I'm always harder on the men. Why? Because I am a husband. And I speak to you as one of you. We are all in this together. As we preach many times through Ephesians, for instance, on the roles of husbands and wives, my message to husbands was challenging to husbands. My message to wives was challenging to wives and to husbands. Because if I'm the type of man that my God calls me to be, my wife is going to have an easier time reverencing me and respecting me. Now let me just say this concerning being the scriptural husband, the type of man that your wife wants to respect. Think about it. Now I enjoy video games and I get on at night when the kids are winding down and I'll play a little bit with my friends. But if you're the type of husband who never does anything with the kids, never cleans up around the house, never pays your wife any attention, doesn't render unto her due benevolence, which is something that we'll end with today to provide intimacy and affection to your wife, if all I'm doing is goofing off with my buddies as if I'm some glorified college frat boy, am I the type of husband that my wife is going to respect? No. You see, when you put that ring on your finger and you put your hand on that Bible or you stand before the minister and the congregation and you vow to God and to that woman, you vow to her that you will be different from that moment forward till death do you part. And I would exhort you, if you're in an engagement, to be practicing all of this responsibility even in that time period. The problem with this country today is we have too many grown-up boys. We have too many grown-up boys who don't want to be men. And the Word of God calls on us to be men. You say, well, where does it say that? When Paul said, quit you like men, what does quit you like mean? It means stand up and be a man. It doesn't mean stop or cease like men stop or cease. Quit you like men is a figure of speech that means be a man. Be a man. Scripture would have us to be men, not grown-up boys pursuing childish things. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I thought as a child, but now that I'm a man, I've put away childish things. As we begin to look at the role of the husband in the household, there are three basic points that I want to give you, responsibilities that we have today as men. And the first of these is the foundational principle of what else we look at today, and that is to say that the husbands, according to the book of Ephesians chapter 5, are the heads of their respective households. Ephesians 5, 23 through 33, this is a good deal of reading, but I want to read it for you. For the husband is the head of the wife. Now, as we expressed to you last week, headship, this conveys to us theological concepts we as the church are the body of Christ. Christ as our Lord is the head of the church. We are his body. He is our head. Involved in that is the language from the book of Genesis, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We have been, you wives, the original woman Eve was taken from man and then presented back to man. She was taken from him and then re-presented to him and they too shall be one flesh. And we find in this a lesson about our connection to Christ. We are one with him, one entity, one flesh in that sense. And at the same time, we learn these practical matters of the way that we ought to 
involve ourselves with one another the way that we belong to one another in the Christian home. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Christ is the head of the church. The church is the body of Christ. The husband is the head of the wife, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, by the way, in verse 21, as we think about subjecting ourselves to one another, notice verse 21, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. There is also an epidemic of lack of submission in the church today. Now, so if any of us want to start hounding on women about that, I've known some of the most rebellious men, the most rebellious men to the church who do not submit themselves to the church or to the ministry to be the most lording over their own wives. Why is that? It's a God complex. It's a God complex. So as we want to maybe twist our wife's arm with that, Yes, the wife is to be subject unto her husband, but at the same time, we are submit to submit everyone to another in the church. And so, we are all subject to one another. In our leadership as fathers and as husbands, I want to give you this word, this phrase, this title, and it is that of a servant leader. Now, elders in the church are them, according to the Bible, that bear the rule. Now, deacons don't bear the rule. The congregation doesn't even bear the rule. But the Word of God says elders bear the rule. But on the flip side of that, they are not to be what? Lords over God's heritage. And so on one hand, they bear the rule. The buck stops here. We're the superintendents, if you will. That's what the word bishop means, an overseer. But at the same time, we're not lords. I don't sit on a pedestal dictating to everyone else what they should do and they ought to do and tell them to grovel around me. There's some preachers who like that. Never in a million years will I stand up here and grandstand for every one of you to start cheering and clapping for me as I'm in the pulpit. And there are some preachers that really feed off of that. Not here. We don't even clap. We're like the frozen chosen. We don't even amen. Now, don't say amen. He'll get the big head. Don't say amen. Don't raise your hand. Don't do any of that. We don't want him to get the big head. Now, be sure to grimace at him a little bit. Really put him in his place. When we have a handshake, come around and say things like, I enjoyed your talk. <laughs> you've not lived until you've, you know, or, or, or the, the silent one where they just come around and they just look at you. Thanks. I appreciate it. Anyway, husbands, we are not lords. We are servant leaders. Did Christ come into the world the first time to lord over his bride? Now, he had every right to. But what did you find him doing at the Lord's Supper when he institutes communion service as his disciples bickered over which one of them was the greatest? He takes a basin, he pours water into it, he girds himself with a towel, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. The one in all the church with the authority to dictate everything and even receive worship lowered himself into the form of a servant. What was the relationship between these people and Christ? He is their head. He is their husband. They were his bride. They were his body. If you want husbands to know what sort of leadership we have as heads of our houses, I would point you to the Lord Jesus Christ, the great head of the church, who when his disciples argued over who was the greatest, he didn't stand up and say, be quiet, I'm the greatest. No, he stooped down and he washed their feet. He put himself in the form of a servant. In fact, according to Philippians chapter, th chapter 2, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, and he was, he, he was obedient even unto the death of the cross for the joy that was set before him, though he despised the shame 
He suffered the gruesome, hideous death of the cross on our behalf. Husbands, the type of husbands that we ought to be is the type of husband that Christ is to his bride. A loving leader who serves as he leads. You know, the difference in a Lord and a leader is simply put in this. The Lord puts himself on a pedestal and points his finger and dictates. And he says, you do this, you do that. The servant leader, the shepherd, and the under-shepherd, they go out in front of the flock and they walk and they say, follow me. Now, there are times in my home, you better believe it, that there's some dictating that goes on. Go to bed. We don't want to go to bed. I didn't ask. That, that sentence ended in a period. It didn't end in a question mark. I did not say, do you want to go to bed? Now, there's a role that we have as parents to tell the children what to do. But above all, as dads, get this in your mind, I'm a servant to lead them. I'm a servant to lead my wife, serving Christ and serving them. We're servant leaders. Have that imagery in mind of a shepherd leading sheep by standing out in front of the fold, not barking to it where it goes, but saying, follow me, calling unto it, and leading it. By the way, this is exactly what our Savior does for us. He leads me beside still waters. As a pastor, I'm an under-shepherd. And as someone who is to depict the relationship of Jesus with his bride in my marriage, that means that I am to lead in that way as well. You sisters, uh, as, as we talk about this, don't, don't get all gushy and faint as we talk about this type of husband that we all ought to be. It's so romantic. We ought to be servant leaders, though. Continuing, I meant to read that. I got sidetracked. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is Savior of the body. More on that concept in a minute. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it, to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their own wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones." For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined unto his wife. They too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. The husband is the head of the wife. Now we often say that the husband is the head of the household, and that is true. But you notice in this language, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. He's the head. The husband is to the wife what Christ is to the church in a special sense. Now, as a bit of a clarification there, only Christ can be the spiritual savior of your wife. You cannot, husbands, go to the cross of Calvary, lay down your life for your wife, take her sin upon you and suffer for that sin because you have sin of your own. You and I cannot save our wives from their sins because only Jesus is capable of being Savior. He's the only mediator between God and man, the only name among men, given among men, whereby we must be saved, is the name Christ Jesus. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. You and I cannot atone for the sins of our wives. But there is a way when we do bring a great saving, if you will, influence on them in a temporal sense. We strengthen them, we cherish them, we nurture them, we instruct them from Scripture. 
We can't regenerate them, but there's even passages that speak about a, an unbelieving spouse being led to discipleship through the influence of the believing spouse. So we can have a godly influence on our spouses. As we think about the Savior of the body, men, when someone comes into your house at three in the morning attempting to do your family harm, who is it that's going to go and face that threat? It's going to be you. In a temporal sense, there are many ways that the husband is to protect and look out for the wife. The husband is to the wife as Christ is to the church. That is to say, he is the head of the household, the head of the wife. Now, with that being said, if we as husbands are more worried about being in charge, the being in charge aspect, than we are the loving her as Christ loves the church aspect, something is likely misplaced. Something needs to be adjusted. If I'm more worried as a husband about commanding her and ordering her around and controlling her, and God forbid punishing her, because there are some husbands who do seek to punish their wives. Sometimes it may not be physical, which in my opinion is reason for not only a woman to leave the man, but it should be as the man is sent away in the back of a police car. But they seek to punish the wives in other ways. Vindictiveness. Petty, passive-aggressive behavior, little acts of revenge, closing her off, being cruel to her, mind games. Scripture would condemn that sort of headship in a home. How do you know that? Because that's not the way Jesus deals with us. It's not the way Jesus deals with his children. It's not the way he deals with his bride. So that should not be the way that we deal with our wives. If I'm more worried about the being in charge aspect than I am loving her, then I am in error. I am in charge. It is my household. And as head, I'm responsible. More on that in a moment. But I am to chiefly love her as Christ loved the church. Now, by the way, if you're a young woman and you're here today and you say, this message really isn't one that touches on things that I need practically, let me just exhort you. When you're looking for a husband... Don't think that you can clean him up later. If he isn't husband material when you're dating, he's not going to be husband material when you get married. If he talks poorly to you when you're dating, if he's mean to you when you're dating, and then he buys you something to make up for it, or he apologizes for the 4,000th time, oh, you can forgive him in the church. Seventy times seven, but that doesn't mean you need to marry him. Ladies, if the man that you're considering is your future groom does not treat you now the way that a husband ought to treat his wife, he might not be the marrying type. You might need to get while the getting is good, as it were. Get out of Dodge. Exit stage left evacuation, ejecto seat, whatever you want to say. Get out of there. People think, oh, isn't he dreamy? He's the bad guy. He's the rebel. We get into mischief together. Won't it be great like Bonnie and Clyde? You do know what happened to Bonnie and Clyde, don't you? If you don't see traits in him that indicate he'll be a godly husband for you, then don't give him the time of day. I told you the story several times about a dear high school friend of mine, one of my best friends in this world. I found out he called, and we called up and checked in, and he had gone through a rough period in his life and told me that he was dating a particular woman that he had met in a place where, let's just say, it's not where you go to meet wives. And I asked him, I said, do you have any intention on marrying this woman? And he said, no. Why are you wasting your time and hers dating her? And he broke up with her the next week. I kind of felt bad for her, but pick people, young ladies, pick men 
that make good husbands. We're not caterpillars most of the time. We don't enter into a cocoon on the honeymoon and come out a butterfly. You get a glimpse into the way that they're going to be as husbands as you are dating them. Now, does that mean God can't work a work of grace? No, of course not. God can change them, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to happen. Don't risk that. Don't risk that. If he's irresponsible now, he'll be irresponsible then. Now, let's think about this a little deeper. As Jesus built and watches over and provides for and loves his church, so is the husband responsible to treat his wife in that capacity. The husband is to build up his wife. The husband is to watch over his wife. The husband is to protect his wife. The husband is to provide for his wife. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. Now, I was very careful with my words there, and there was a word that I used, four-syllable word, started with an R, responsible. The husband is responsible to care for his wife in this way. If you are responsible for it, necessarily, necessarily there must be accountability. Who placed you in the role of headship in your home? Maybe you wives are like, who does he think he is? Who died and made you X, Y, Z? Husbands are placed in this position of leadership in their homes by God. God then holds them accountable for the way that they take responsibility. Now, as Americans, we pay a lot of lip service to personal responsibility. However, Americans many times are not very personally responsible. Now, this is why we have speed limits, and it's why we have all kinds of laws that bother us. If there was personal responsibility to the extreme, you wouldn't need state troopers out there with a radar, would you? And yet every one of us blisters down the highway. I mean, I have a personal rule. I won't buy a car with less than 300 horsepower. I won't. I owned one once. It was awful. You pull out in traffic, it takes so long, you never spin your tires. I enjoy going fast in a car. That's not responsible living, is it? We're supposed to take personal responsibility. Husbands, we have to hold ourselves accountable or God will. Now, whether we realize that or not, just as the pastor is held accountable more than anyone else in a church for what happens within it, just as the powers that be are held accountable for what happens in a nation more than anyone else in a nation. That ought to make our rulers tremble, and most of them don't even believe in him. Husbands, we are held accountable as the heads of our houses for what takes place under the roofs of our home. We're held accountable for what our family is taught, for whether they are brought to worship, we are held accountable for what they watch, what they listen to, for the friends and the company they keep. That accountability lies with me. Now, as we think about the husband as the head or the leader, he's placed by God in this position. He's held accountable for what takes place in his household. Let me just give you this little rule of thumb where God gives authority, he requires accountability. Where God gives authority, he requires accountability. He holds us accountable for things over which he's given us authority. Now, there are things in the world that God doesn't give me authority over. 
And one of the secrets to peace of mind is realizing I'm not accountable for that. Not my circus, not my monkeys. I got enough monkeys in my circus. Not my circus, not my monkeys. This is a message full of slangs and figures of speech. Peace of mind comes when I realize I don't have any control over that. God holds them accountable. God is the one who deals with that. This is my father's world. I'm going to lead my life, tend to my family, pastor the church that I serve, and minister in my community, and I'm not going to involve myself in all that junk. Whether it be the powers that be, they're accountable to God, or the thought police, or any other thing, look, I'm just going to deal with my home. I'm not going to argue with people from five states away on social media as if I'm accountable to them or I can control what they think. We need to refocus our lives so desperately in this country. You'd have a lot more peace of mind. works for me. Where God gives authority, he holds you accountable. Same scenarios with pastors and government officials. So as we think about the role of the husband, number one, he is the head of the household. Now, I'm going to follow a tangent here. I'm responsible for the behavior of my children. I'm responsible to rain on their parade. And I'm sorry, teenagers, forgive me. Dads, I give you full permission. If you don't like the dude, for good reason, who wanders into your house, you have every prerogative to say, get out. Well, that'll hurt my daughter's feet. I don't care. Since when did I care? I walked upstairs about three weeks ago, and there was a young man up there, not with Lydia. She doesn't care. She's not into guys. Praise God. She's just not into the dating stuff. There was some young man sitting up there. I walk up. There's a group of people, a girl and this boy. And I look at him and say, who are you? Oh, I'm uh, so-and-so. I say, why are you here? Her jaw hit the floor. There was a big group of them like a horde of zombies on Walking Dead wandering the neighborhood, and they ended up in my yard. And I made it my goal to make them think I was the meanest, cruelest, ugliest, most hateful man on the block. Now, you know I try to be, as Sonny Pyle said, a man who overflows with the love of human kindness. But not when it comes to boys wandering up in my yard. I want every teenage boy within a 50-mile radius of that subdivision to think I am mean. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. You can count all the figures of speech in today's sermon. I want them to be afraid of me because they're coming around my daughters. If they're watching something you don't like them to watch, tell them, turn it off. If they're listening to some rot gut filth, some audio pornography, tell them, get that junk off your radio before I take that radio and throw it off the second story window. Well, that's going to make them mad. Since when do I care if that makes them mad? My job is not to make them happy. My job is to keep them from killing themselves before they turn 18. Fathers, that is our job. We've got to rise up to this occasion. We've got a country full of men who are scared to death of their children. If I do that, they're going to get mad. They're going to scream. They're going to yell. They're going to stomp their feet. Good! You know what? The longer you resist that as a dad, the more entertaining you find that. Oh, no. They're mad at me. How will I live another day? I love you kids, and I'm not talking about y'all because you've learned. By the time you've got five kids, they've all learned. Oh, I'll give it up. Rachel was talking about Micah the other day. She said, you know, when we tell him to clean up around the house or to brush his teeth, he just goes and does it. He doesn't argue or back talk about vacuuming the rug. When you grow up seeing the four before you get swatted on the rear end a dozen times, I guess just word to the wise, yeah, I caught on. 
Maybe I ought to just do what dad says. We can be friends when you grow up. But right now, I want to raise you in such a way that you don't destroy your life before the time you turn 20. It's my responsibility. The buck stops here. The father is the, and the husband is the provider of life's necessities, number two. Now, this is something that hails back before sin in the Garden of Eden. This is the original role of mankind to glorify God, obviously, as a creature made in his image, to conquer and subdue the world. But in the book of Genesis chapter 2, God placed man in the garden, verse 15, to dress it and to keep it. What was he to do? To dress the garden and to keep the garden, to care for the things that are in the garden. What was in the garden? Fruit, food, their sustenance. He put him in there. He tells him to dress it, to keep it, to nurture it, to tend to it, and to eat that which you cultivate. As you know, in chapter 3, sin enters into the world through the transgression of one man, Adam. As Eve was beguiled by Satan, gave to Adam, he did eat. The entire race plunges into depravity. There's an old Jewish legend that Adam saw his wife fall and wanted not to be separated from her and loved her more than he loved God and willingly participated in that so he didn't have to watch her die while he continued to live. And that has absolutely no evidence in Scripture. But it's a Jewish fable that's perpetuated up until this very present day. Why did Adam transgress the law of God? It doesn't give us a specific why other than lust. What did Satan say? In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt what? God will. God does know that in the day you eat thereof, your, your eyes will be open and you will be as gods. That to me gives me more scriptural insight into Adam's motivation than anything else. No, it doesn't say that he loved his bride, he just didn't want to lose her. There's not a verse in this book that indicates that, to my knowledge. But Adam transgresses the law of God. He violates the law of God, and when God gives the curses to Satan and to the woman and to Adam, unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the day, all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth unto thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, and for out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Adam was to do what? He was to work, he was to provide for his family, and because of sin, it would have been easy to work. It would have been a beautiful paradise to have a wife and children and a job prior to sin. But because of sin, work is now difficult. And by the sweat of our faces do we tend to whatever it is that God has given us a talent and a desire and an opportunity to do. Now, when we love Christ, we can serve our employers as unto him, and it can be a far better place with biblical principles in mind, but it doesn't matter how much you love your job, there are days that it is absolutely gut-wrenching. By the sweat of your face, you earn your bread. In the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 5, if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Husbands, if you want to know one thing in the world that is worse than an infidel, according to the Word of God, it's a man that doesn't take care of his own family, doesn't provide for his own family. I've known some very, very hardworking men in my life. One of them is not here today, is a, a dear brother in our church, Brother Jerry. Brother Jerry works two jobs and has just about the entire time I've known him to provide a nice living for his wife and his family, and now takes care of his mother. God is glorified in that. He is glorified in that. 
If a man doesn't provide for his own, he's worse than an infidel. I've made this point before and I'll make it again. Men have that instinct to work and when he's a godly man and he desires to work and he loses his job and he can't provide for his family, you will not find a greater form of depression in a man than a man who wants to provide but cannot provide because of the circumstances of this life. Our economy has taken such a hit this year. Our unemployment has skyrocketed. Pray for good men who want to work and provide for their spouses. Pray for men who cannot provide. And men who won't provide are not only worse than infidels. Paul gives us a solution for that as he writes to the Thessalonians, if a man won't work, he also should not what? Eat. Y'all finish that verse better than you did most of them that I asked you to finish. If he won't work, he also should not eat. God has ordained this from the beginning that men work and care, provide for their family. Women bear children. Had this conversation in counseling with a young couple the other day, pre-marriage counseling. Think about life up until our modern age with Similac and bottles and public schools that keep your kids eight hours a day and lack of birth control. You had child after child after child. The woman was either carrying a child or nursing a child in the age when that was possible. If God provided with pregnancy, there's no way she could go work in a field. She was either carrying or nursing. And so you have where a woman is designed, designed to carry and nurse children. You have where the man is designed to be of larger stature, more physically strong, to go and to work in the field to provide. Friends, we're literally designed for this as we think about the role of the husband and the wife in the home. It's amazing to share it from the Word, but to look at physical law and say this is literally the way the world is designed to function. It just has God's thumbprint on it. Scripture says the invisible things of God are clearly seen by the things which are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they, the atheists, are without excuse. The provider. Number three, and fathers, I should have left 20 minutes for this one. We're the spiritual heads of our houses. Now, we're the heads of our houses. We're the heads of our houses. The buck stops here. We're the spiritual leaders of our homes. Now, you may say, well, yeah, when I have kids, I'll teach them the word of God. No, 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 no. Remember what I said last week. You don't become a family when you have little ones. You become a family separate from fathers and mothers the moment that you come together in holy matrimony. And so if you have no children in the home because they have gone on and you're an empty nester or you never had children or you've yet to have children, you are a family when you marry. And husbands, you're the spiritual heads, even of your wives. Notice it doesn't say that husbands, you're the head of the children, but you're the head of the wife. You are the spiritual leader in your homes. Now, this is a statement that so often we apply to the pastorate. And it's one of my dear preacher friends and I often discuss. It is possible but very unlikely that any group of people can rise above their leadership. That scares me to death as a pastor, and it scares me to death as a father. It's so rare when an entity can rise above their leadership. Fathers, you're the spiritual leader of your homes. Now, obviously, the chief responsibility that we have is to our children, to raise them, as Paul would say in chapter 6, to provoke them not to wrath, but to bring them up in the nurture 
and admonition of the Lord. Think about that word nurture. We want to eat a nurturing diet. We need nutrients. We need to be brought up and built up and raised. Fathers, let me just exhort you. There are times when you've got to grit your teeth and go eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose with the little replicated versions of yourself in your home, but you do not want to tear them down. You want to build them up. You don't want to tear them down. You want to build them up. Once that clicks in your head, I love them, I care for them, I've got to stand up to them because they're self-destructive. Things you overhear in the house. Hey, do you remember that time we rode a scooter off the roof of the building and landed on the trampoline? What did you just say, Lydia? What? You did what? You know, Ethan jumped off the roof onto the trampoline when he was young. But not Lydia. No, she's got to take it to the next level. We got wheels involved. They're self-destructive, and you have to protect them while at the same time giving them enough liberty to make mistakes. Let me tell you, falling off the monkey bars teaches little kids to be careful. Skinning your knee teaches you to be careful. That balance of how much is what keeps us awake at night. But it's our responsibility, fathers, to bring them up in the nurture, nurture, building up. An admonition of the Lord. The word admonition, as you know, means correction. We discipline them, we train them, we teach them, we correct them, we build them up so that when they are old, they are self-sufficient, responsible adults who have some code of biblical morality. Even if an adult child is not born of the Spirit of God, they can be taught right from wrong, and that wrong has negative consequences in our lives. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This doesn't exclude the wife from the task, but fathers, husbands, his primary responsibility falls on you. We're the heads of our houses. I saw this quote last night, ironically enough, and I was very thankful to see this. It's from Dr. Meg Meeker. I've read some of her parenting books before. The one that she wrote, Boys Should Be Boys, I would commend to every parent of boys. Boys should be boys. It talks about falling out of tree houses and breaking arms and how we need to be boys. I feel sorry for fewer people in the world than the boy that grows up with a henpecked mama who thinks that somehow being a boy is abnormal and offensive. Let me just tell you, ladies, boys stink. Boys make messes. Boys don't want to play with dolls. Boys want to go out, and if you say, I don't like guns, they'll go and make guns out of sticks. They'll go make knives out of sticks. Ethan had a barrel of sticks on our front porch every place we ever lived until he was about a teenager, and he knew what everyone was. This is an AK-47. This is an M-16. This is the sword off of Lord of the Rings. Because that's natural for boys. Boys should be boys. God made them masculine. And masculinity is described in this country as being toxic. Well, when rioters come to your neighborhood and begin looting and knocking out windows, it seems like we need some toxic masculinity. Anyway, don't get me on that soapbox. We'll be here till 3, and I'm hungry. Every son is his father's apprentice studying not his dad's profession, but his way of living, thinking, and behaving. Dr. Meg Meeker. Every son is his father's apprentice, studying not his dad's profession, but his way of living, thinking, and behaving. Fathers, your child, your son, is learning how to be a man by watching you. It's terrifying. Your daughters might just be picking what type of husband they want by watching you. Such a serious matter. Now, I know that we're over, and so we'll end with this last point. Husbands, we also have the responsibility to lead our wife in the Lord. Notice these two statements, and I have thought about these for three weeks. Jesus, the husband of the bride of Christ, the church, 
has done for us what he has done that he might present it, his bride, to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle. A glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle. The thought of glorious church. To me, as a husband, I can learn that from that, God would have me to build my wife up, not tear my wife down. Glorious church. A glorious church is built up, glowing, shimmering. I want to build her up, not tear her down. And I mean in a spiritual sense. Number two, without spot, we can lead our wives in holiness. Now, I can't atone for her sins. I can't quicken her. But I can help her sanctification. I can pray for her. And I do every day. I can pray with her. We can talk about the Word of God. I am to lead her in holiness. Jesus wanted his bride to be without spot. I'm to be concerned with the sanctification of my bride. Husbands, I would charge you to love your wife, to cherish your wives, to nourish your wives, to give yourself for your wives as Jesus gave himself for his church, to lead your wife, to lead your children, to instruct and admonish your children, to provide a living for your family. And as 1 Corinthians 7, 3 says, to provide intimacy and affection in an emotional and a physical sense as you render unto her due benevolence. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved his church.